Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Picture yourself alone in the middle of nowhere, and there's somebody following you. He went on his way, we so thought, and then we went on ours. But in reality, he really followed us up there. On Deadly Nightmares, the true crime podcast from ID, listen to real stories of ordinary people stalked by serial killers and attackers. <laughs> Please, tell me we're not going to die. Listen to Deadly Nightmares on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The following podcast contains explicit language and content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Previously on Unraveled. A prostitute came in and was making allegations that there was a sergeant who was smoking crack, drinking, and had a prostitute as a girlfriend. Burke is appointed chief in the uh, very end of 2011, and that's a time where the Hugo Beach case is still really high profile. That police department is now being led by someone who's hiding a past of transgressions. And he leans over and says, you know, hey, you know where I can get a snuff film? How detrimental was it for James Burke to remove the FBI from the Long Island serial killer investigation? Not having them involved um, really did set the investigation back. Now, can you believe that? And the county executive, Steve Ballone, says, I stand by it. I mean, what, is that, what message are you sending to the rank-and-file cops of this department when you allow this to go on? It's absurd. He definitely had uh, an angel on his shoulder. You know, somebody was definitely watching out for him throughout his career. All right, I'm recording. It's an overcast Sunday afternoon as Billy and I are navigating through the tree-lined streets of Smithtown which is on Long Island. Make a left on Blackman, and then you're gonna make a right on Howell. Left, next left on Rice. You're gonna make a left on Dogwood. You should be right there. Our investigation into the Long Island serial killer case has brought us here. 30 years before 11 bodies were discovered along Ocean Parkway, there was another huge Long Island murder story. And we think it might hold important clues to the Lisk investigation. Dogwood Elementary School looks closed. Just park on Rice and we'll walk. It's in the back of the school, right? We're outside of Dogwood Elementary School. It's tucked into a cul-de-sac in the middle of a leafy neighborhood. We walk past the gate through an empty parking lot towards the back of the school, where a large field leads to a baseball diamond. 
behind the baseball diamond are woods. We're behind the elementary school now. What are some thick? The trees are 150 feet tall. This is where Johnny Pius's body was found. It was the hillside right there. Johnny Pius was a 13-year-old boy who was found murdered behind Dogwood Elementary School in 1979. The mysterious circumstances surrounding his death still haunt Long Island to this day. It's such a sad, scary, horrific death to have at a school. To have your final moments here is just, I can't think of a better word, and tragic. Billy and I are retracing Johnny's route on the night he went missing in April of 1979. We get back in our car and drive a few blocks to the house where Johnny lived on Franklin Drive with his mother and father. It's one long row of small, identical-looking brick homes. It's locked up really tight. All the blinds are closed. It looks... It looks not lived in. But it's perfectly manicured. I mean, there are like topiary trees that are perfectly sculpted in the front too. Yeah. It's it's eerie. We arrived on Long Island 3 weeks ago to launch our search for answers in the Long Island serial killer case. We're trying to understand why after 10 years this case remains unsolved. We've learned so much already about James Burke, the former chief of police who corrupted the Suffolk County Police Department. But we still have several questions. In order to look forward, we need to look decades back in time in an effort to understand, essentially, how we got here. Because this is where James Burke's story and rise to power really begins. Everything with Burke botching the Long Island serial killer investigation, the Chris Loeb story starts at this driveway when John Pius rides away on his bike towards the elementary school. This John Pius case, this was his turning point. And it not only changed his destiny, it changed the destiny of so many people in this story. Ten bodies uncovered, and whoever's responsible is still out there. Do you want to start with how this entire thing started? It was a sex party. Police make mistakes. They're only human. But these weren't mistakes. He said, your whole fucking family's done. If there's anybody who knows how to kill someone and get away with it, it's a cop. Somebody's just keeping the cover-up going. From ID and Joke Productions, this is Unraveled, a seven-part podcast. We're going to show you that everything you think you know about the Long Island serial killer investigation is wrong. Hi, I'm Billy Jensen. And I'm Alexis Linkletter. In our last episode, we exposed James Burke's double life, an existence fueled by an obsession with sex, control, and power. Burke ran the Suffolk County Police Department like the mob, dismantling the Long Island Serial Killer Joint Task Force and effectively shutting the FBI out of the investigation. The question is, why? And why was Burke able to rise to the top with so many skeletons in his closet? Did he do this alone? Or was somebody looking out for him? To find answers, we went back to Smithtown, where James Burke grew up. Which, it turns out, is the same place another infamous Long Island murder story unfolded, 
case of Johnny Pius. In our search for answers, Billy and I discovered something very bizarre. At the heart of the Pius case are two people that also show up years later as central characters in the Long Island serial killer story. I spoke with someone who knows all about them. Hey, Jesse, how's it going? It's Billy Jensen. Yes, good. Perfect. Perfect. Is it okay if I record this? Yeah. Jesse Kornbluth is a prolific journalist who has contributed to almost every major publication, including New York Magazine, for which he spent years delving deep into this case. How big was the Pius case in 1979 on Long Island? It was huge. It was huge. When a kid, a 13-year-old kid, an only child, is murdered in a schoolyard, the echo of that goes to generations. On Friday, April 20th of 1979, 13-year-old Johnny Pius left home at 8.15 p.m. and rode his bike over to the elementary school to meet a friend. He promised his father he'd be back by 8.30. At a certain point, he didn't come back, and his father went out looking for him and did not find him. Uh, In the morning, they went and searched again, and then they found the body. Johnny's body was found about 200 yards behind the school, buried under two logs and a pile of leaves. His face was badly bruised. He had swollen lips and hemorrhaging of both eyes, and bruising and lacerations to the neck. Johnny had suffered a brutal beating, but the horrors of his final moments didn't end there. This was a boy found with six rocks stuffed in his mouth in the schoolyard. Six rocks had been lodged into Johnny's throat. Imagine the terror of finding a child murdered in such a gruesome way. What kind of monster would do this? On top of the dehumanizing use of these stones, there was one other piece of evidence. There was a mark on the boy's face uh, where you could say that someone with a Puma sneaker had stood on the face to push down and left the imprint of the tread. It suggested kids. The autopsy stated the cause of death was traumatic asphyxia. In essence, suffocation, which had been caused by the six rocks, each roughly one inch diameter in size. Five of the rocks had been shoved down Johnny's throat, and one was found in his mouth under his tongue. The ME who performed the autopsy speculated that the attack looked like the work of juveniles, although the size of the shoe print wasn't discernible enough as being from another child. After news of Johnny's slaying spread through the community, a terrified public called on the Suffolk County Police Department to make an arrest, and quickly. But it would not be so easy. The actual forensic evidence was very, very slight. Eight Suffolk County detectives were assigned to the case, but they did not find any suspects. The crime scene provided little evidence for police to go on. The generic nature of the Puma sneaker print found on Johnny's face proved useless in terms of narrowing suspects. In lieu of evidentiary leads, the detectives began their search for a juvenile suspect within the small radius of the Pius home and the crime scene, both of which were in the same neighborhood. They encountered several neighborhood kids, including a 15-year-old named Peter Corderero. The detectives and Peter exchanged small talk about Johnny's murder. Did he see anything? Did he know anything? 
Peter voluntarily agreed to go to the police department to answer questions. And it's not clear how or why, but what started as an amicable questioning of the teen shifted into an intense interrogation without notifying his parents or properly Mirandizing him. Peter Cordero was 15. He was told by the police that if he confessed, he could go home. And they pretty much told him what happened, and then he told them what they told him. And that all took four hours. In the course of Peter Cuadraro's statement, he implicated three other teens in the murder. With his confession in hand, the Suffolk County Police Department was ready to report that they knew who murdered Johnny Pius. 15-year-old Peter Cuadraro, his 14-year-old brother Michael, and their friends, 17-year-old Robert Brensick and 17-year-old Tom Ryan. And they had also uncovered their motive. Well, the official story is that these kids, Peter and Michael Cordero, Robert Brensnick, and Tommy Ryan, had stolen a useless $5 bike, and that Johnny Pius saw them do it, and that they threatened him and because he was going to turn them in over this $5 thing. And so they stepped six rocks down his throat and pushed him to the side of the playground and then went blithely home. Peter had confessed. As far as the public was concerned, the allegations seemed credible. Right there, where we were standing in Smithtown is where Peter said Johnny's fate had been sealed in a blink of an eye. So you have these teenagers during this minibike theft, this minibike without an engine, and they're taking this route towards one way towards the school. Johnny Pius is riding on his bicycle towards another way, and this is where they converge. And the initial story, the story that was that was supposedly proven, this was what it was, was that they thought Johnny saw them with this stolen minibike and they wanted to take care of him. Talk to me about the the Pius case from a Long Island little boy's perspective because you knew it as an urban legend cautionary tale, right? I'm not going to say my entire life of crime journalism began here, but I think it started with Son of Sam being caught. But this is number two. John Pius' case was definitely the second one that I remember. Son of Sam would have been 77. John Pius' case was 79. I distinctly remember my father watching this case on television. And I remember my dad saying, this is why you don't snitch. This is why you don't tell on your friends. Just mind your own business. Just so weird that I'm back here. The lead prosecutor assigned to the case was a young up-and-coming attorney named Tom Spoda. This is one of the names that caught our attention. If Tom Spoda sounds familiar, it's because we introduced you to him in episode one as the district attorney of Suffolk County at the time of the Long Island serial killer investigation. The pressure on Spoda to bring charges against the suspects was intense. But the case wasn't cut and dry. And that's because immediately after giving police his confession, 
Peter Quateraro recanted, saying he had nothing to do with the murder, and neither did the three other suspects. They all denied having any involvement. Despite Peter's retraction, Suffolk County Police and the DA's office were convinced that these four teens were the culprits. But Spoda would need more evidence to bring charges against them. By May of 1979, the four teens had been publicly identified as the prime suspects, and the community became fractured. A harsh line separated those with opposing views on their guilt. But while they appeared to be guilty in the court of public opinion, there was still not enough evidence to arrest them. Weeks went by with no progress in the case. Then months. And still there were no arrests. But then, after eight long months, the four teenagers were arrested for the murder of Johnny Pius. I asked Jesse Kornbluth what new evidence had been brought to light that finally led to their arrests. Well, there's no evidence. The evidence is Peter Cordero's confession. And then it was buttressed by remarks that other defendants had made to other kids, allegedly, which testified to their guilt. The details are murky. Who were these other kids that allegedly overheard incriminating statements? And what exactly did they hear? And that's when the second name from the Long Island serial killer investigation revealed itself to us. One of those kids that Kornbluth mentioned, that had ratted out his friends, was none other than James Burke. The same James Burke that would later become chief of the Suffolk County Police Department. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Picture yourself alone in the middle of nowhere and there's somebody following you. He went on his way, we so thought, and then we went on ours. But in reality, he really followed us up there. On Deadly Nightmares, the true crime podcast from ID, listen to real stories of ordinary people stalked by serial killers and attackers. (laughs) Please, tell me we're not going to die. Listen to Deadly Nightmares on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. I'm very lucky to have a close relationship with my amazing mom, and I'm doubly lucky to be friends with some amazing moms. The thing is, this means that every year, right around this time, I get those panicked phone calls asking for Mother's Day gift recommendations from, obviously, their partners. So I was excited to learn about StoryWorth just in time for Mother's Day 2024. StoryWorth is an interactive way to preserve your loved one's stories for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question like, what do people get wrong about you? Or what's the most incredible trip you've ever been on? 
All your loved one needs to do is respond to that email with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. StoryWorth will send you a copy of your loved one's response, and after a year, StoryWorth compiles the stories and some photographs into a beautiful hardcover book that will last for generations. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. The moms in my life are big-hearted, hilarious, and they're all super storytellers, so they're going to love StoryWorth. I just know it. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash unraveled. That's storyworth.com slash unraveled to save $10 on your first purchase. In April of 1981, nearly two years to the day from when Johnny Pius was murdered, lead prosecutor Tom Spoda began the first set of trials for the four teenage suspects. Peter Corderero, Michael Corderero, Thomas Ryan, and Robert Brensick. The defense attorneys for the four suspects focused on undermining the validity of the witness statements that materialized months after Johnny Pius was killed. Here's Thomas Ryan's attorney, Charles Hothbaum. There's no evidence in this case. It's a, a theory, uh, an emphasis on the horrible death of Johnny Pius, but no evidence connecting my client. Uh, they've taken things out of thin air and tried to blow them up in the things that the witnesses who saw and observed and didn't think they were. Practically zero evidence in this case that Thomas Ryan did anything connected with this crime. Uh, they, all they have is one statement that the sole witness to it can't even remember what was said. First up were the two Corderero brothers, the now 17-year-old Peter and 16-year-old Michael. Johnny's murder had sent shockwaves throughout New York. The public's curiosity for a story about kids killing kids ran deep. Pius case was a horrible, horrible thing. That's Suffolk County legislator and former detective Rob Trotta. He was in high school during the time of the trial. The young prosecutor was Thomas Boda. And the star witness in the case was a very young 14-year-old Jimmy Burke. As Trotta recalls, James Burke's testimony was a key part of Tom Spoda's case against the four teens. It was based on a conversation that Burke overheard with some of the defendants. What happened was they found that Jimmy Burke, who testified in the trial, and his testimony was that these boys, months later, admitted to him that they did it. Back then, there wasn't DNA, there wasn't physical evidence or things like that. Burke's testimony was that he and Michael Cotteraro had hung out with some other kids several months after the murder. One of them asked Michael if he and the other suspects had killed Johnny. And according to Burke and the other two teens within earshot, Michael said they had no choice. They were drunk and high, and Pius had seen them steal the minibike. Despite the lack of any physical evidence linking the four teens to Johnny's murder, Tom Spoda relied on this hearsay testimony to argue his case. And it worked. James Burke testified several times in the decade following Johnny's murder. Danny Collada asked him, how could you kill someone for just stealing a minibike? And how did he respond to that? Michael Cordero. Michael Cordero said, if you were drunk and stoned and you didn't want to get caught, you would do the same thing. Burke testified that Michael Cordero didn't seem worried about being arrested. I asked him, I said, uh, will you in any more trouble with this Pius case? And he, he said the pig it up and too much time had passed. 
The jury found the Quadrar brothers guilty. In the years following the first two convictions, Thomas Ryan and Robert Brensick were found guilty as well. The convictions were a big win for Tom Spoda's career. But many people in the community were outraged by the belief that those verdicts were the result of police abuse and shoddy detective work. As gruesome, as awful, as vicious and brutal as this death was, and it was, it is only equaled by the lack of evidence in this case. This case has been haunted by the ghost of a confession which has been held unreliable by the New York Court of Appeals. If you had a son that was accused of something and he was innocent and went to prison for it, maybe you could understand what it's like. They didn't do it. And as far as I'm concerned, it was sloppy police work and they didn't care. The loudest and angriest complaint was over Peter Quattararo's confession, the one he'd recanted almost immediately. Also troubling was that following Peter's confession, detectives had driven him to the school and instructed him to reenact what had allegedly happened to Johnny. According to court documents, once they left the school, Peter was pressured to admit that all four suspects had been involved in the murder. The detectives secretly recorded this admission. In the late 70s, the Suffolk County Police Department's confession rate was so high it was practically unmatched anywhere else in the nation. Here's journalist Jesse Kornbluth again. You have to understand this was a homicide squad that had an amazing confession rate. I think it was 91% in those years. It was a, a very corrupt police department, a very corrupt homicide squad. By the mid-1980s, the New York State Court of Appeals had reversed at least 10 homicide convictions because of improperly obtained confessions. Over time, the four defendants and their families consistently maintained their innocence. Here's Thomas Ryan. I don't know what happened to John Pius. I never saw him that night. And here's Michael Corderero. I prayed for John Pius in 1979. I pray for him now. Only he knows what happened on April 20th, 1979. And somehow I find peace with that and try to move forward with my life despite the way I've been treated. Words cannot express how deeply I feel for the Pius family. In the decades that followed, all four defendants were eventually released amid a complicated set of appeals and plea deals. So if Tom Spoda prosecuted the Pius case with unreliable testimony, we had to wonder about James Burke's role. Had Spoda used Burke as a tool to secure his victory? How did Burke even end up a key witness in this huge murder case? After reading about the Quadraro convictions in May of 1981, New York journalist Jesse Kornbluth sensed something was amiss within the justice system in Suffolk County. I went out to Smithtown and I started interviewing and within about 20 or 30 minutes, I saw that the official story made no sense and that the police had made, as police can do, a mistake really in the first five minutes. It's the mistake that the authorities made in the very first five minutes. They made a presumption that this boy came from you know a solid family and had no problems and they did not know that the mother was out that evening they did not know 
that Johnny Pius had uh, th had thought of running away or or staying out late. They did not know that when his father went looking for him the next day, he failed to find him, though the body was not that hard to find. Jesse Kornbluth believes detectives failed to properly look at a suspect who lived directly across the street from Johnny. If there was anyone who bragged about the murder, it was a guy named Robert Burke, no relation to Jimmy who said that he had to kill the pious boy because uh, he had put his penis in the boy's mouth and he was afraid that the pious boy would tell. It all comes down to the fact that Spoda had already made up his mind about the four teens. Basically, the cops had a story and the kids told it. They just closed cases. There was no presumption of innocence given to these kids. They were guilty before they walked into court. Kornbluth found that Spoda was known, on occasion, to make sweetheart deals with low-level criminals. That is, he wouldn't prosecute them in exchange for a favor. The prospect that James Burke could have made one of these deals with Spoda isn't a big stretch. It's no secret that Burke was a juvenile delinquent. Here's Rob Trotta again. Jimmy Burke would brag that he did 100 burglaries when he was you know, in high school, breaking into people's houses, stealing jewelry or things like that. Do I know that that's true or not? No. But I was actually there when he said, you know, I used to sell weed when I was in high school. Interestingly, Burke did later in life admit to Newsday reporter Paul Rocco that he came dangerously close to going down the wrong path as a kid. As a teenager, uh, you know, he got into, you know, he, in his own words, but, you know, he was someone who was kind of like, you know, on the precipice of uh, going the wrong way, you know, hung around with a group of kids who later, you know, would, would get into some trouble. But then he went on to, uh, you know, um, kind of follow in his family's footsteps and become a New York City police officer. So, hypothetically speaking, is it possible Tom Spoda offered James Burke one of these sweetheart deals for his testimony in the Pius trial? And then the police, in order to fit their narrative and fit that one confession that they got, they used a couple of the neighborhood kids, including James Burke, to come forward and say they overheard a confession. Yeah, they, they overheard this, they overheard that. It's a devastating reality to contemplate. A public official corrupting the justice system to win a case. But again, hypothetically speaking, why would Spoda go to such extreme measures? He was uh, a second-rate lawyer who was had gone as far as he might go in this DA's office. But Spoda was young and, you know, full of dreams. The point is, he, he liked the power. He wasn't particularly effective in court, but he didn't have to be. That was the point. What Rob Trotta and others observed of Burke and Spoda 40 years ago, and seemed mildly suspicious then, now seems problematic. The thought always was, was why is this 35-year-old guy with this kid now, knowing what I know now about how they work behind the scenes and the corruption and how they're villains, essentially, that whole thing which happened, you know, 35 years ago is something that, you know, could be the catalyst, the birth of this relationship. 
So this opens up some really big questions. What did James Burke really know about the murder? Was it possible he had been involved? There are varying stories about whether James Burke could have been there when this whole mini bike thing happened. Whether he took the opportunity to be the one to turn on his friends so that he wouldn't get in trouble. Here's Jesse Kornbluth. We will never know what happened, but I think what we can know is that these four boys are not the killers. And that basically you have an unsolved murder here. And it's the ultimate cold case because at this point, I mean, it's just the sands of time have washed over everything. Beyond the heartache of Johnny Pius's unsolved murder, there is also the decades-long tragedy of what happened to the four defendants and their families. It divided the community and undoubtedly ruined lives. If you're not knowledgeable about Suffolk County, as I say, you think it's the Hamptons. It's not. It's the Amityville Horror. Knowing what you now know about Burke and Spoda's history, was the Pius case a key moment in their story? It was their first date. That's all. It's where, I mean, look, it was just a matter of who could be cultivated, who could be uh, turned. If the Pius case was Burke and Spoda's first date, it would get a lot more serious over the next 20 years and ultimately land both men behind bars. Two decades after James Burke's life intersected with Tom Spoda's, during the Johnny Pius case in 1979, their lives collided once again. In 2001, Spoda ran for the Suffolk County District Attorney and won. One of his first acts in office was to transfer Burke, who was a lieutenant in the Suffolk County Police Department, into a special unit of investigators that operated out of the District Attorney's office. Only this time, their paths didn't cross by accident. Remember, Burke already had serious infractions on his police record, including getting caught being intimate with a sex worker in his cop car. How did Burke get lifted out of the ranks and put into this high-level position, given the transgressions of his past? We put this question to the current district attorney of Suffolk County, Tim Sini. Tom Spoda shepherded him along. He was a protege of Tom Spoda. A couple of years later, Spoda promoted Burke again. He made the first inspector of the DA squad. They didn't have an inspector. That's a pretty high-ranking official in the Suffolk County Police Department. Here's Jesse Kornbluth looking back on the Pius case. Spoda could not have recognized Burke at 1415 as the kid who could be his tool. But at some point, a point not known to any of us, something happened where he saw that uh, Burke was like his kind of guy. Though no one can be sure when their alliance was formed, Kornbluth believes he knows why it happened. Well, the thing is, once you make a deal with the devil, you can't unmake it. At a certain point, Spoda knew what Burke was. Burke was useful to Spoda because he could close cases and he could cut corners and no one gave a damn. But Burke also was transparent to Spoda. 
Spoda knew who Burke was, and Spoda couldn't cut him loose. Because Burke was nuts, right? I mean, not nuts, dangerous. And he had the power to bring Spoda down. It's a, a classic case of mutual deterrence. What Kornbluth is saying is that if Burke lied on the witness stand to help Spoda win the Pius case, Burke had the goods on Spoda to ensure his career moved upwards. But Spoda also needed a dirty player like Burke on his team. Here's current DA Tim Seney again. Well, he was put there for a reason. If you don't put your co-conspirator in charge of that bureau, that's going to be a problem for you. So you put somewhere that is part of your cabal. For close to a decade, there was never any sign that anything was amiss in Spoda's office. But then, in 2010, after the first four bodies were found on Gilgo Beach, the feds started noticing that something was off about the way Spoda was handling the Long Island serial killer case. There was an attempt to involve the FBI in that case, but there was never a full engagement of the FBI in connection with the Gilgo investigation. And what we realized was that that was at the orders of the former district attorney, Tom Spoda. The current Suffolk County Police Commissioner, Geraldine Hart, was formerly a supervisor in Long Island's FBI field office. She confirms that it was Spoda calling the shots when it came to shutting the FBI out of the Lisk investigation. So I can point to an example that's that's pretty illustrative of, of what he thought of the FBI's involvement. When, uh, when the Behavioral Analysis Unit came to Long Island, to Suffolk County, to conduct their in-person uh, investigation, the DA's office would not even allow them to touch the, uh, the crime scene reports or the photos. The DA, Tom Spoda, who headed up the homicide section, would read to the behavioral analysis unit what they thought the FBI should know. Um, that's really just kind of sums it up on what, uh, what the relationship was like and what the district attorney's office thought about having the FBI fully involved in this case. This revelation that the FBI was blocked from looking at evidence is different than what's been widely reported in the past. That it was then Chief of Police James Burke acting alone shutting the feds out. So if this stonewalling came from the top, the question again is, why? What was it that Tom Spoda didn't want federal investigators to see? Was he hiding something to protect himself? Or possibly to protect James Burke? Or for a reason yet to be revealed? Spoda also went on to alienate Richard Dormer, the police commissioner at the time, after Dormer told the public his theory on how many killers there were. Well, look, uh, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that four bodies uh, in this area. Certainly, uh, we're looking at that. We're looking at that, that we could have a serial killer. Dormer stuck to his single killer theory even after the bodies and body parts of six additional victims were found along Ocean Parkway. And we still believe it's one killer at this point. This prompted Spoda, the DA, to take the highly unusual step of publicly denouncing Dormer. I do want to just address one issue, and that was uh, brought up before by the police commissioner himself when he says that the theory is that there is only one killer. Um, I very, very much disagree with that theory. I don't know of anybody who 
in the police department who is actively conducting the investigation who shares that theory. To put their feud into perspective, there are many who believe in the single killer theory and many who think there is more than one killer. But Spoda's actions raise questions. Why was he so invested in pushing the multiple killer theory on the public? Is it possible he knew something the police didn't? Or did he have a secret agenda? According to the current police commissioner, Geraldine Hart, neither theory was based on fact. It was interesting to me how district attorney at the time, Spoda, and the commissioner of Dormer really locked in on the theory, uh, which was at complete odds with one another, um, and was really based solely on speculation. 2011 turned out to be a significant year for the Long Island serial killer case. That's when the body count climbed, gruesomely, from four to 10. But 2011 is important to our story for another reason. It was an election year, and the seat for Suffolk County Executive was open. And this was of interest to Spoda because the county executive appoints the chief of police and the police commissioner. Spoda endorsed a candidate named Steve Ballone, who ran essentially unchallenged, and he won. Weeks following his victory, Steve Ballone appointed James Burke as the chief of police. With Burke and Spoda now occupying two of the most important positions in Suffolk County, their alliance was more powerful than ever. Once Burke had power, he had as much power as Spoda, maybe more. Because he had, he had discretionary power. Spoda had essentially a code of, of laws and ethics that he had to work within. Burke did not. Spoda could control subpoenas and search warrants under the letter of the law. And with Burke installed as the new chief, he could also wield his influence on the police department and the Lisk investigation through his longtime ally. Burke, in a way, was his, uh, his id. Burke could do the things that he couldn't do, and Burke would do them, because he was a sex fiend and a drug fiend, and he was basically an uncivilized animal. But then he became Spoda's animal. That was useful. A quick side note. Tom Spoda's allegiance to James Burke was alive and well in 2015, when he was indicted and later convicted on charges of conspiracy to cover up Burke's assault on Christopher Loeb. Spoda was caught trying to hush some of the cops to make sure they didn't flip on Burke. He went as far as ordering tracking devices on their cars to keep tabs on them. Here's what we know. Tom Spoda and James Burke blocked the FBI from seeing all of the evidence in the Long Island serial killer investigation. And there's a great deal of evidence we're not aware of. One of the most debated questions of this case is, is there one killer or multiple killers? Before we can draw our own conclusions, we need to go back to where this investigation started with the discovery of 10 bodies along Ocean Parkway. Coming up on the next episode of Unraveled. The search for bodies along Ocean Parkway intensified. More women were found. These women were decapitated and dismembered. 
There were parties with numerous sex workers. Nobody did anything about it, and there were deaths. So just because you're at these parties doesn't mean you're the Long Island serial killer. But there's a few guys that know everything. She ran all this, screaming and yelling at 4 o'clock in the morning for her life, and no one heard anything. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that uh, you have the chief of police down here with a prostitute. So what does the public need to put two and two together here? If you have information or anything you want to share about the Long Island serial killer case, we'd like to hear from you. Email us at unraveledtips at gmail.com. Unraveled is produced by Joke Productions for ID. The executive producers of this podcast are Joke Finciun, Biagio Messina, and Jeff Kuntz, along with myself, Alexis Linkletter, and Billy Jensen. Executive producer for ID, Thomas Cutler. Additional producing and writing by Margaret Aronson. Our editor is Aaron Frisha. You can also submit anonymous tips to the Suffolk County Police Department by either calling Crime Stoppers at 1-800-220-TIPS or by visiting their website, gilgonews.com. The music and score that you've heard in this podcast is by Biagio Messina, Dave Pellman, and the Alibi and Nimble Libraries. Make sure to check for episode four next week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcasts that you enjoy listening to. Thank you for listening and for your support. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.